You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. This morning, um, and I want to basically go look at this and then, and then sing before we have the communion. It's on page 574. I'm sorry I don't have uh, the words up on the screen. Uh, that's because, like I often do when I go out in a day, I left my wallet at home. So, uh, and it had my uh, USB stick in it. But if you've got a Bible, Psalm 53, if you don't have one, you can get one at the door. For the director of music, according to Mahalath, a mass, a mass skill of David. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt and their ways are vile. There is no one who does good. God looks down from heaven on the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. Everyone has turned away. They have together become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Will the evildoers never learn? Those who devour my people as men eat bread and who do not call on God. There they were, overwhelmed with dread when there was nothing to dread. God scattered the bones of those who attacked you. You put them to shame, for God despised them. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When God restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. Now, actually, this is actually really, really hard for me to preach on this. I, I, it's uh, the same psalm, more or less. There's a little, few changes with Psalm 14. And uh, it seems at one level quite an easy thing, someone who believes in God, to stand up and talk about those who say there is no God as being fools. Uh, that's not easy. Because first of all, there are some of you here who this psalm will directly apply to because although you're not theoretical atheists, perhaps, maybe some of you are. Uh, and you are very welcome here. And it's good that you're so open-minded that you're willing to be here. But uh, it, it will be hard for you to hear some of this. But a lot of us, I think, are functional atheists in that we, we, we act as if there were no God. And this makes it very, very hard because when you're trying to teach this, it may come across as incredibly arrogant and I'm right, you're wrong type thing. And that's really not what this is about. The way I would put it is this way. When you love someone and you see them doing something wrong that will harm themselves, you warn them about their foolishness. So someone, for example, a very close friend, a son or a daughter, may be about to get married and you know it's going to be a disaster. And you, because you love them, you, you tell them, listen, this is crazy. Or um, a very small child, for example, may be just about to stick their finger in the plug and you shout at them, stop it. Well, part of what we're doing here as we look this morning is this is God's word to you and it, it's God, I think, challenging you at the very deepest level of who you are and what you think. And I think it's true also for every one of us, as we will see. But I want to, to begin by praying a prayer of St. Chrysostom, which I read uh, this morning, and uh, I think it is appropriate for us. Let's pray. Almighty God, who has given us grace at this time with one accord to make our common supplications to you, and who promises that when two or three are gathered together in your name, you will grant their requests. 
Fulfill now, O Lord, the desires and petitions of your servants, as may be most expedient for them, granting us in this world knowledge of your truth, and in the world to come, life everlasting. Amen. Now, this accusation of foolishness, the foolishness says in his heart, there is no God. It is, it is used not to attack or even to defend. It's used to warn and to challenge. It's used to wake up. That's the most that I want to see happen from this morning, that God would wake you up if you are not a believer to something that is obvious, and that if you are a believer and you're under attack and you, you have cause to doubt and to fear that God would, would speak to you and that he would encourage you not to turn away from him. You'll notice at the beginning of the psalm, it's the, for the director of music according to Mahalath, which is probably uh, a tune or a style of music, and it means disease. So it doesn't sound very good. We're going to sing this to the tune disease, but that's, that's really what is being said. And I think this psalm looks at the disease facing humanity, the disease that is rampant throughout the world, the disease that is rampant uh, in our city, in our country, in our culture, the disease that is rampant in this church, the disease that is rampant in your heart, and the disease that is rampant in my heart. And it is fundamentally the disease of sin, which is turning away from God. That's ultimately what sin is. It is turning away from God. Paul applies this psalm in Romans. He applies it to those who are under the law. He's applying it to religious people. It's exactly the same as Psalm 14. Now, some people think that Psalm 14 was uh, David with a difficult situation that he faced and that Psalm 53 is uh, perhaps later on and refers to a difficult situation that was occurring in the nation of Israel. I think in both instances it still applies to our situation. This psalm was written at a time when things were bad for the church. The remembrance of God had been removed from the minds of men. There was very little godliness. It looked as though everything was going to be lost. It looked as though the forces of darkness were going to overwhelm the church. And sometimes we feel that. Because let's be honest, there are times that uh, some of us have been in churches that have been absolutely packed and things have been going well and we talk about Scotland as a Christian nation. And then we come to today's situation and in many situations, it seems as though there's been a tremendous falling away. And it seems to be increasing all the time. Even this past week, I was just devastated to read one of the leading evangelicals in Britain writing an article in which he argues that the Bible is not the Word of God. Now, at what point he then says he's evangelical, I don't know. And the number of Christians who just kind of hum and haw about it and don't say anything. Say, well, we've each got different views and so on. It's no wonder that people are confused. And in the churches sometimes there does seem to be a spirit of unbelief in the living God. So I find it strangely 
quite encouraging that we're coming to something that's 3,000 years old and it's dealing with exactly the same situation. Atheism is not a phenomenon of the 21st century. Atheism has always been around. Now, when we're talking about atheism, I want to talk first of all what it says here about the foolishness. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. You'll notice the phrase, in his heart. That's a very important, and sometimes you might just skip it by. This is not somebody who's standing up in public saying there is no God. Probably in that culture, there would have been very, peop- very few people who would have done that. might have been a bit like standing up in the middle of um, Mecca and saying there is no God. Not a good way to go. And it may have been that that is... That He's referring to this. There weren't many theoretical atheists, people who, who would say it out loud. But this is somebody who says it is in their heart. It's what they feel. And he says it's very, it is foolish. It is foolish. Now, why is it foolish? Well, I think there are lots of reasons. I'll come on to that in a minute. But let me just say this about our hearts and about how we feel. I don't know if you as a Christian have ever had this experience, but you're going along, you're sailing along quite nicely as a Christian. You enjoy worship, you enjoy reading the Bible, you enjoy prayer, sometimes you're conscious of God's presence. And then one day it happens that you're not conscious of God's presence, and things are pretty low for you in some way or others, and suddenly you feel, what if there's no God? And it's a feeling. It's not a rational thought. It's a feeling. And it's an absolutely overwhelming feeling. Well, we don't go by our feelings. But our feelings are, tell us something about ourselves and tell us something about what is happening. And it's good for us to examine and to think about these things. The fool is somebody who says in their heart there is no God. And there are plenty of people who today will have absolute confidence they feel certainly that there is no God. They feel that what we're doing is a waste of time. They feel that the Bible is full of nonsense and so on. Uh, I spend a great deal of my time talking with such people, and I have to say the vast majority of what they think is feeling. It's what they feel. And that's why this psalm is so appropriate. But you see, God has a way of, of, of getting to our hearts in different ways. There's a Scottish writer who told me, I am an atheist, he said, but I'm a Presbyterian atheist. I don't believe in God, but I keep looking over the shoulder to see if he's there. Or there was a man I met this week who I was debating with, and I said to him, just we were just talking, and I said, just out of curiosity, what happens if you become a Christian? He says, Oh man, that's dreadful. He says, But I've got some something, and he said, do you know, I happened, former Roman Catholic, I happened to be looking at my missal and picked up the Bible and I felt my heart warm and I began to think, uh-oh, what if this happens? Because feelings work both ways and sometimes there are people who are just stone-cold, hardened atheists and then God begins to work in their lives. And uh, that's, I mean, that's what I would pray for everyone. But I think what's been addressed here is not so much the intellectual atheism as the functional atheism where these are people who don't deny God with their lips but they live as if God were shut up in heaven. 
as if God were not aware of what went on, as if God made no difference to their lives. And my fear is that there are far too many of us as Christians who are living on an experience that we've had in the past, and the presence of the living God right now is something that we ignore, or we shut up, or we wish was there, but we feel that it's not. Because every time you deliberately sin, you're saying, I don't think God is here. Every time that you, you turn away from God, you're saying, ah, he's, he's not relevant to me. And I think that is the situation that's being dealt with here. Not just your hardcore 21st century new fundamentalist atheist, but your Israelite in David's day who was brought up in the covenant community but is saying in his heart, there is no God. Your Christian, who, inverted commas, who is here, is part of the fellowship, and yet within themselves are feeling almost that there is no God. So how does that, how does that work out? What does God see when he observes this? Well, he observes there's no understanding, first of all. Here's the irony People think the more understanding you have, the more likely you are not to believe in God. But the Bible reverses that completely and says that you actually have less understanding. Calvin puts it beautifully. He says, the commencement of integrity and uprightness of life consists in an enlightened and sound mind. But as the greater part misapply their intellectual powers to deceitful purposes... David immediately after defines what true understanding is, namely that it consists in seeking after God. Once it is the fear of the Lord that's the beginning of knowledge, that's the beginning of wisdom. Once you move away from God, you're moving away from understanding and away from knowledge. And it's foolishness. Now, I kind of made a mistake this morning because I got up and I was ready and early and I thought, oh, this is great. And I was sitting having a coffee and I thought, I'll listen to a sermon and not to the usual rubbish you get on the radio. So I put on a Tim Keller sermon. And I kind of wish I hadn't because I had to put it on and I thought, oh, how can I go and preach? Because he was preaching on this subject and it was just stunning. And I just thought, oh, I'm just going to repeat what he said. But I'm, I'm not, but I'll tell you a little bit of it because it was, I thought it was wonderful. And he was uh, talking from Romans 1 and he said this, that it's foolishness not to believe in God, because intuitively we already know that there is a God. It's not that we're atheists. Intuitively, we believe in God. And what we do is we suppress the knowledge of God, as Paul says. Now, you can't suppress what you don't have. So it's there, it's there in every human being. He quotes Thomas Steiner, God has stitched into the fabric of the human mind his existence and power so that they are instinctively recognized when viewing the created world. Now that makes so much sense. That's why there isn't a single culture in the world where people don't believe in God. And there never has been. And there never will be. It is the natural human condition to believe in God. Now, some will argue, well, that's just because of our evolutionary past and so on, and we've grown out of that. But others will argue, and I would argue, and the Bible certainly would argue, it's because we're made in the image of God, and it's because the law of God is written on our hearts, and because we have this awareness of God. 
And I love the story that uh, Keller told. He, he spoke of uh, a father and a son. And the, the, the mother had died. And the, the son was the apple of his father's eye. So he got him into a good school. And, I mean, he spoiled his kid. He really spoiled his kid. And he got him into this really good school. And the school eventually phones him and says, can you come in to see us? So he goes in and says, listen, um, we've got really, really strong evidence that your boy has been stealing. And he's, he's a thief. He's a regular thief. And the father goes away and thinks about it and comes back and says, no, I'm taking him out of the school. It's just that the other pupils are jealous of him and it's the teachers are jealous of him and I'm taking him to a school where he'll be appreciated. So he takes him to the next school and a couple of months later, the next school phones up and says, listen, we need to talk to you. Um, We think that your son is a thief and we've got this evidence and he does exactly the same thing. He says, no, no, it's because the other pupils are jealous of him and the teachers are lying and so on. Why does he do that? At level, at ground level, if you like, he knows that it's true. Within himself, he has this awareness and this suspicion that this is true. But at the, at the next level, at the level he's dealing with it, level one, he convinces himself it can't be true. Why does he do that? Because his son is his idol. Because his son is his salvation. Because he cannot face up to that. And Keller points out that's exactly what we do with God. That we have this basic, intuitive knowledge that God is there, but what happens is, at the next level, we want to deny that because we don't want to face the implications of it and what is involved. Because we have other idols that get in the way. And that's why the psalmist says this is foolish. You end up with the idea of a fool, and and here... It explains the fool as being someone who's corrupt, perverse, vile, contemptible. Now that's a bit strong and people will say, well, that's not fair. And I know a lot of nice atheists or you may say, well, I'm, I'm basically in that position, but I'm not like this. I think you have to be careful. I think what's saying here is this is ultimately what we all become. It's what happens to us when we turn away from God without a sense of moral values or social obligation, in character corrupt, spiritually ignorant. Now, you may not like that. And yet, what if it's true? What if all that niceness that you've got is just that? It's just niceness. And that when you're faced with the harsh realities of life, you can be as cruel and vindictive as anybody else. What if the right and wrong that you think is so obvious without God turns out not to be obvious at all. What if your whole world collapses precisely because you have no basis for it because you have rejected God? That's what the psalmist is saying. Now, he's not saying, I don't think that people are intellectually ignorant, though that may be part of it. I think he's talking about those who in their own estimation and in the minds of others are really clever They employ their cleverness to despise and mock God and his people. I meet some very, very clever people. And yet, what astounds me is, sometimes I debate and argue, and I lose the debate. Sometimes I win the debate, and they pour forth bile and hatred. Why? Why? I thought it was about intellect. It's not about intellect. 
It's about emotion. Calvin says this, It is therefore important for us in the first place to know that however much the world applauds these crafty and scoffing characters who allow themselves to indulge to any extent in wickedness, yet the Holy Spirit condemns them as fools, for there is no stupidity more brutish than forgetfulness of God. There is no stupidity more brutish than forgetfulness of God. Thinking themselves to be wise, they became fools. Now that's why I weep for my culture and I weep for Scotland. Because I can go on and put on the radio at any time, put on the television at any time, and there are people who think that they are being smart, mocking God. And it's killing this nation. And it's killing them. And it's killing this people. It is the ultimate in foolishness. They are corrupt, he says. He uses a word that means um, they've gone off. Literally, they stink. It's a word that was used of milk that has become rancid and sour. There is something rotten, something not right, something deeply troubling in the heart of man. Even in the most perfect person, the most perfect family, the most perfect community, the most perfect nation. You go to Kiev, and when you're there, you can tell there's something rotten. There's something awful about a society where there was so much corruption. Awful about a society where there are people who are living in slums and there are people who are so wealthy that they could throw away gold. Where there, the Ukrainian uh, young women are very, very good looking and hundreds of them fly to Amsterdam for sex weekends to be prostitutes. Why? What, what kind of society do we live in where, where, where that occurs? There's something fundamentally wrong and fundamentally corrupt. And I would argue that that shows in different degrees in different cultures, but it's in ours as well. Perhaps this psalm was about the leadership of the covenant people, like in Micah 3. Listen, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel. Should you not know justice, you who hate good and love evil, who tear the skin from my people and the flesh from their bones who eat my people's flesh, strip off their skin and break their bones in pieces, who chop them up like meat for the pan, like flesh for the pot. Because here's the thing, when people stop believing in God, it's not that they become more humane or more human, they become less human. G.K. Chesterton's very, very famous quote, when people cease to believe in God, it's not just that they lose faith in God, they lose faith in humanity. They throw away all order. They are confused about right or wrong. Because for me, here's another thing for us as Christians. If we say that we love God, it means that we should love human beings more. Because they're made in God's image. J.B.S. Haldane, one of the most famous biologists and atheists, once said, Why should I care for the death of a hundred Chinese? I care no more for the death of a hundred. I said, I care more for the death of a fern, a plant, than I would for the death of a hundred Chinese. This is liberated, modern liberalism. Why should I care? It's just chemicals. I would care more about the, the death of a giant panda, he said as well. When you become a Christian, I mean, there are plenty of people who, I'm not saying all atheists are like that. I'm saying that's inevitably, logically, where it will lead. When you become a Christian, and I wish that all Christians would think like this, it should mean that you love humanity more. You don't have this hatred for human beings. You should have a love for human beings. But these people who hate God, they end up 
hating God's people. Jesus said, if, if, they've, if they've hated me, they will hate you also. They end up treating the Lord's people as prey, he says here, and they do not call on God. McShane says this about our heart if we do not believe in God. And I think you might find this, this hard to take on board. But there is a hatred develops. He said, let, he said, let me tell you what it is. You have a heart that would kill God if you could. If the bosom of God were now within your reach and one blow would rid the universe of God, you have a heart fit to do the deed. So there is something. There was, uh, the, the, the argument you like, if you like, is this, that naturally human beings are not atheists. Naturally human beings have an instinctive awareness of God, but we suppress the truth by our wickedness because we don't want to have to face up to the consequences of what that means. And instead of making, that making us more enlightened and better human beings, it actually makes us darker and ultimately more corrupt and cynical and cruel. And if you doubt that, I just ask you simply to go and look at any of the atheist societies that have ever existed in this world. Religion has done a huge amount of harm, but the lack of a, a biblical Christianity has done even more. So it's no wonder that the psalmist says, the fool, you fool, you say there is no God, you think that's going to bring you peace, you think that's going to bring you enlightenment, you think that's going to bring a progressive, more enlightened and more fulfilled society. No, it's not. It's going to destroy. It's going to kill. That's why it's such a foolish thing. That's why it's like a person who says, I really, really enjoy this poison and I'm just going to drink it because it's going to make me feel good. No, it's not. It's going to kill you. That Sometimes the relief you feel when you think there is no God, that's foolishness. Sometimes the fear you have when you think there is no God and you act, that's foolishness. We need to be awakened out of that. Now, I'm going to just uh, briefly uh, show how that happens. And how, but uh, maybe now is the time we could sing Psalm 53. We'll actually sing the psalm and then we'll look at um, the answer to it. The tune will be Selma. The fool speaks in his heart. There is no God, he says. They are corrupt. Their deeds are vile. None walk in godly ways. How do we deal with this? Because you can end up with a dialogue, uh, an argument that seems to be of the deaf, that one person says this, another person says that, and we bypass each other. Well, I don't think that we primarily deal with this by argument. There are not many people who become convinced uh, Christians because of the ontological proof or the cosmological proof or the teleological proof. And no, I haven't time to go into all of those. Um, that's not normally. I, I mean, I think these things are, are good to think about and I think they're quite important. But that's not how it happens. And in this psalm, it's very, very interesting. What changes everything here is when people see God at work amongst his people. Verse 5 talks about the fear. There they were overwhelmed with dread when there was nothing to dread. The needless fear felt by God's people. It's as though just now, I'm sure that there are Christians, maybe some here, and you're thinking, oh, it's just terrible what's going on in our culture. It's terrible what's going on in my family. It's terrible what's going on. And, and the Lord says, why are you afraid? Why are you afraid? What do you need to be afraid of? Because God is still at work. God is our refuge in times of trouble. The answer to unspirituality is true spirituality. 
If it's foolishness to ignore God and to refuse to believe in him, and it is, the impact that has on us is it leaves us empty. I'm doing a, um, a course just now in the Free Church College teaching on uh, wonderful stuff like um, naturalism, which leads to nihilism, which leads to existentialism and postmodernism and so on. And it all sounds so intelligent and wonderful. It's not really. It's fairly straightforward. As if you believe that nature is all there is, then you've got no ultimate real meaning in life. So you could become a nihilist where you say, nothing matters, nothing matters, nothing matters. So that doesn't really work in your life. So what you do is you become an existentialist. You say, well, everything is meaningless, but I've got to make meaning in my own life. I'll try and make some kind of meaning, whether it's through a computer game, whether it's through family, whether it's through work, whether it's through money, whether it's through sex, whether it's through drugs, it doesn't matter. I'll find some kind of meaning. And that's where our culture is, because our culture, ultimately, if you believe that the only things that exist are things that are chemical, then you're going to end up empty. Empty. It's a soullessness and a godlessness and an emptiness. But to be a Christian is to believe that God exists more than that, that he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. In other words, we can be filled. There's an answer of restoration. Oh, that salvation for Israel will come out of Zion when God restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. God will restore the fortunes of his people. He always does. This is not just Israel being restored from spiritual backsliding in the time of Saul. It's not just Israel being returned from Babylon to the land of Israel. But it's God restoring his people. And that's, if you were to go into the the New Testament, and you go, for example, to Paul's letter to the Romans, where he quotes this, that's what the whole message of that uh, is about. I think it's wonderful. I mean, he quotes it in Romans 3, but I'm just going to maybe quote some things from Romans 5. The astonishing statement... Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character. Character, hope. By the way, you're a non-believer. You have to run away from suffering because there's nothing there for you. The Christian goes through suffering and don't in your heart then say, because I suffer, there is no God. Because things are going wrong, there is no God. Actually, the Bible's warned you about that already. Suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character. Character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ comes to give us understanding and sight. Human beings instinctively know there is a God. But because nature shows us, our nature shows us, what nature will never tell you, nature will never show you that God is love. You will never get that from contemplating nature. Jesus came to show us that. Jesus came 
to give us understanding. He came to give us a new heart and a new spirit to free us from our corruption, to deliver us from fear, to give us his spirit, to unite us in his body. That's what we celebrate in the communion, the real presence of Christ. Not as is understood in Catholic theology of a, this is literally, physically the body of Jesus. But that Jesus is real and his spirit is present. Take and eat, because it's possible for us to be fooled, to be filled. I guess there's two kinds of fooling, if you like. There's the fooling that comes when you say in your heart, there is no God. And then there's the filling that comes when you acknowledge the Lord Jesus Christ. He came to restore us to that relationship with God. Now you can take lots of different variations, but ultimately I think it boils down to two things. We either say in our hearts there is no God, even if we profess to be religious and deny the God of the Bible or make up other gods or whatever, or we can say, no, I believe that the Bible is true. I believe that what God has said is true. I believe that there's a God. I believe he has sent his son, Jesus Christ, to come and to die for us. And I live with that. Now, the one way is a way of emptiness, and the other is a way of fullness. And I've, obviously, I would encourage you and urge you to take that second way. Let's bow our heads and pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Bless it to us and help us to apply it. Help us as we continue to reflect upon it. May we never lose the wonder of what you have done for us. That you came into this world to die for our sins, to be raised so that we might be glorified and that we might have newness of life. Grant that to us, for we ask it in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.